What's up, everybody? This is Trevor Holbrook. And this is Noah Rolfing, and you're listening to a special edition of the Double Technical with Trevor and Noah. What did we do today, Trevor? Well, Noah and I swung by the Jacobson building and sat down with Iowa State soccer coach Tony Minata. Uh, I really learned a lot from him. He's, he's obviously a soccer junkie. Very knowledgeable about the game, yeah. He touched on a lot of stuff, such as the World Cup, uh, Iowa State, and kind of how he meshes those two together to help improve Iowa State. Yep, and after a season filled with injuries last year, he's looking forward to having a healthy season this year, and uh, it's gonna be. it was a really interesting interview, and we hope that y'all enjoy it. So I guess the first question is, how's the offseason been going for y'all so far? You know, it's difficult for soccer because uh, essentially – we have zero contact with the athletes during dead week and finals week. So that puts you at the last week of April. You don't have any contact. And over the summer with soccer, we don't have any contact. We're not allowed to check up on them to know if they're working out or what they're doing. Uh, so it puts us at a decided disadvantage when you're looking at, we report on July 31, start practice on August 1, and we have a game August 17th. So you have 15 days to prepare for that first game when you have zero opportunity to work with your team over the summer. Um, but, you know, the, the athletes are working really hard. Um, you know, we, we stay in contact with them as much as we're allowed to do. Uh, and, you know, from, you know, the sounds of it in, you know, talking with the captains and whatnot, there's a lot of hard work going on and they're really putting themselves in a position to be more successful this year. And you kind of see uh, success of a season is directly correlated to the offseason and the leadership that you have. And with this group, we've had some really strong captains in the past, but the this group has really taken on the mantle of leadership and really put a lot into ensuring that everybody's having a positive experience and up to speed with what they're doing. So really excited about uh, Riley Bean, Jordan Enga, and Emily Stiles, our team captains, going into it because – you need an extension of yourself if you can't be there to do things. And they've really uh, stepped up and, and done well uh, to ensure that the team is prepared. So um, as far as that goes, how does that impact recruiting as like not being able to contact um, play? Like uh, you talked earlier about, you know, kind of the dead period, not being able to talk and not being able to talk to um, players officially visit wise until like, their junior year um how how does that impact um when you when you get commitments or when you get like well it's going to be interesting uh because the rules are changing they changed to not have a allow unofficial visits to happen until junior year i mean we used to have ninth graders come and go to football games go to basketball games now if those athletes come to campus we can't even talk to them at all uh so that's going to alter the landscape, but one thing they are going to do as well is they're going to limit communication. You can't even talk to the club coach or their high school coach about these athletes. No third-party contacts, uh, no incoming calls, so if they call me, I can't answer the phone or talk to them on a phone call. Uh, it looks like they're going to re... Right now, the recruitable age is ninth grade year. It looks like they're going to drop it all the way down to like seventh grade year to because then it'll eliminate people from calling sixth graders or trying to go after sixth yeah. graders because who's going to who's gonna do that? I mean, that's, that would be crazy uh, to try and recruit a sixth grader. Uh, so 
it's definitely slowed down the process for us, but I, I absolutely agree that that's what should happen. Right now we have, uh, in our 2021 class, we have commitments uh, and we're pretty much, we, in the 20 class we have commitments. We haven't moved on from those, but we have a lot of commitments in those areas. So for us, it just kind of actually gives us the opportunity to slow things down. When we go out to recruiting events, now we're evaluating players over time. We're not evaluating them once and then being told, hey, well, you know, this school and this school are coming to have her come on a visit and they're going to make this offer. So you guys need to jump on that. Because um, it's a lot of it is pushed by the clubs, by the parents and surrounding coaches. So it makes it, I think this levels the playing field a little bit more and gives us an opportunity to really evaluate a player because the best player at U14 or 15 isn't necessarily going to be the best. And then there's players who are, maybe in, a, in an awkward stage physically, emotionally, mentally, but then they kind of mature, and when they're juniors, that's when they're really starting to come into their own, and you miss out on those players because you don't have – you've already committed everybody two years before. So I actually like the rule. Um, it's definitely going to change how we do things, and and moving forward could make it – it's going to make it a lot tougher in terms of uh, a player now could hear from a college coach through their club coach. But in the future – that player, same player could get 100 emails on communication day. So oh, yeah. now you have to, okay, you have to up your mm-hmm. your email game because you have to do something <laughs> that stands out to this player, right? So this is not yeah. something we've had to really do in the past. So we really, but the good news is with the players that we have committed and where we're at, we don't really have to worry about this for another year and a half because yeah. that's the class that we're on at this point. So. Okay. So, so you guys are kind of already preparing to adjust to the new rule, like the rules that are going in effect next year? Correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they, they made the one rule without the visits, but they didn't take away any of the other stuff. So it's still happening across the country and there's things that people are doing. Uh, one school that shall remain nameless in this podcast, I've heard that they're doing an ID camp every Saturday. So they can't come on an unofficial visit, but they still come to camp. So they're just doing an ID camp and they've set it up. So every Saturday, that they're at home during the season, kids can sign up, come to camp. Well, you can do a tour as part of camp. You can do these things as part of camp. You can't have a recruiting conversation. But what is a recruiting conversation exactly? And so people are already looking, okay, they've made this rule. How do we get around the rule? Uh, And if they blanket make it, you can't communicate, you can't give offers to athletes, you can't do these things, then that takes care of all of that. And now we all have to move forward of actually – being good at emailing people with things that are going to catch their attention. And, you know, because the reality is if North Carolina offers a a ninth grader a scholarship to come play for them, that athlete doesn't need to go visit the school. You know, they're going to say, oh, North Carolina, yeah, of course I'm going to go. If we do that, well, I need to see the facility and meet with you and things like that. So I I think it's better for everybody and it gives – Something that we ran into, too, is a lot of club coaches were kind of saying, oh, well, you know, she's she's going to go big time. Or they would say, you know, you're not a school of interest. Well, how do you know? Have you talked to her about it? We want to talk to her kind of a thing. So it eliminates all that stuff where you just directly communicate with the kid. And if they say, yeah, this is a place I'm interested in, then you have that communication with them and it bypasses all the other stuff that's been going on. So I'm really... Uh, happy for the rule and I think that the communication piece coming into effect with the non-verbal offers until junior year also really is going to help us all out Uh, looking forward to next season I mean your team dealt with a lot of injuries uh, for sure Um, 
And you have a lot of returning athletes. How important is it to get everyone back and healthy from the get-go? You know, it's uh, it's big for us. I mean, we <laughs> obviously, like, you, you, you think you're going into a season and you have this lineup, and then next thing you know, okay, so you have this lineup, and then next thing you know, you have this lineup, and then you're like, okay, well, we're, with this lineup, we have to change the lineup. We have to change the formation and do things differently. Uh, but I think the athletes that went through the experience after looking back on it, I mean, we, we went to eight overtime games against Florida that went to the Elite Eight, Baylor that went to the Elite Eight, the Big 12 regular season champions, the Big 12 tournament champions, third in the Big So we were right in every game without all those players with a system that uh, I think played to our strengths with that group. So if we continue to carry that forward with the system and we get those players back and healthy, we're, I think we're going to be in a good position. You know, we returned 87% of our minutes played from last year. Uh, and what I've found at Iowa State, and you can look at it across the board with all sports, with the exception of probably volleyball and the golfs at this point in time, but what you win with at Iowa State is leadership and experience. You know, look at football last year. They had a strong senior class. They won with leadership and experience. Uh, basketball. They were winning with leadership and experience, and then they went into a, a team that had a ton of talent, but they suffered injuries and they lost the leadership. Now, what are they talking about with this upcoming team? They're talking about, well, they're going to have leadership and they have experience, <laughs> right? So I think going into it, it, it's important that we keep those players healthy, uh, especially our strongest leaders. Um, but, you know, you, you're looking at we could be starting the exact same starting lineup that we ended the season with where we went 0-0 with TCU, lost in overtime. We came back to tie Texas Tech, and then we beat Kansas State. Everybody starting that was on that was out there with the exception of Carly Langhurst, who unfortunately had an injury in the, in the spring. But we get Mar and Daniel back. Um, we get Marin back so that can slot Shea into that center back position. Uh, McKenna Schultz had an incredible spring, so she's – I think gained the experience necessary to be able to, to compete at this level. So the, at the end of the day, we're deeper, we're a better team, but again, you can only overcome so many injuries when it's to key players like we lost. I mean, the, the loss of Carly and Marin early in the season, I mean, you saw how the team performed when Carly got back. Just think if you would have had Carly and Marin the entire season, it's, it would have been a different year for us. Um, and that's that's the, the struggle is to continue to – build that depth through recruiting and a lot of the players that we've recruited they recruit you recruit them so early by the time you're going to get them here it's three years away but I think we're starting to hit that stride where I mean we have Taylor B coming in who was the best 11 uh at the national championships um so she could come in and, and create some opportunities right away you have Brooke Miller who was a national champion and so all these players were key players on their team so then it just kind of feeds um feeds the team a little bit more depth and you don't necessarily, if you don't need them to play every game 90 minutes, they can give you that 15 minutes in a game where that ex less, that lack of experience isn't such a factor. Yeah. So um, how often, you cha you've changed your formation a couple times during the last season. You talked about doing a 4-2-3-1 heading into the upcoming season. How often do you watch a professional soccer to kind of, um, kind of get like tactical ideas or stuff like that? Well, I think I've only uh, missed, because I was recruiting, I missed about four of the World Cup games. <laughs> Other than that, I've watched every game. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm, I watch BPL every, every morning. I'm up watching BPL. I'm watching La Liga. I'm watching uh, Champions League. I watch what I can watch, because I'm being sports. You get some of the Serie A games, so I'm able to yeah. watch that. Um, and I, you just look at who are the most consistent teams 
And, you know, you look at the World Cup, uh, we're not Saudi Arabia. Like, if you equate that to our level, we're not Saudi Arabia where we're, we have no chance of really winning and we have to do things in a way to really try and counter what the other team's doing. Yeah. But we're also not, and I hate to use Spain because they just died Morocco yesterday, yeah. but can we beat Croatia, right? So Croatia plays at times a 4-1-4-1. They really are more set up in a 4-2-3-1. They let Modric... Uh, float and play and create and make things happen. And well, I look at Modric and I look at Hannah Cade. I'm like, okay, well, we have that in Hannah Cade, right? Then you talk about Rakitic, who plays as an eight, kind of goes forward, is able to be box to box. Well, we have Emily Style, who can play that role. She likes to shoot from outside. And do you have a, a strong number six? Well, we have Casey coming back. Obviously, she's very good. And we have Marin coming back, who could both play in that role. So you look at the strengths of the players, and what I'm, what I'm finding is this the consistent approach needs to happen you know, we played a style, which uh, Diamond 442, which takes a certain skill set and group of players to be able to manage that. Well, we're shifting into a formation now with a 4-2-3-1 that is seamless in transition where whoever comes in just fits into what we're trying to do. And when we're defending, it's going to be a 4-4-1-1. That's what it's going to look like. We're going to defend in numbers. We're going to be organized. We're going to be tough to break down. And when we break out into the attack, it's going to look more like a 2-1-3-1-3. A right? Because we're going to send people forward and then they get back in. So we've really uh, addressed that in the spring. We drilled it and healthy again against Nebraska in the spring game. I thought we did very well and, you know, tied 1-1 against a team that also went to eight overtimes last year. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, two teams that made national team camp and they brought back all of their players. So it, I thought that was a good indicator of what we can do when we're fully healthy. Is it kind of fun, though, being in the offseason? you got to get a chance to watch something that's kind of a once-every-four-years situation, and you get to say that it's part of your job? Yeah, so if I leave this afternoon to go watch Argentina uh, play Nigeria, then for me, I'm, I'm doing work, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. And that's a huge game. What are the tactical changes? You know, you heard that uh, Argentina kind of had a mutiny, and they... they supposedly, the players are going to put together the lineup for the game because they're unhappy with the coach. Which, if you look at things like, you know, Argentina's coach, they've played six different formations since World Cup qualifying. Mm. Different lineups within those formations. So it, there's something to be said about consistency and having a consistent approach and playing to your team's strengths. Well, what are your team's strengths? You need to identify those. And it doesn't seem like Sam Pelli really had a plan for Argentina and he just kind of all over the place. And you watch him on the sideline pacing up and down, right? Yeah. So I draw off of all that stuff. And I don't just watch the games. I listen to the commentary. It's a little difficult because I have – I can't stand Alexi Lawless and then his commentary is all, ah, set pieces. We got the set piece. I'm like, dude, you wouldn't even be playing uh, in today's game. You weren't good enough. You weren't good enough then, in my opinion. You're not good enough now. But, you know, I do like to listen to the analysis of uh, – to see, okay, this is where they succeeded. This is where they failed. This is where – this is what they're doing. And you see a lot of, okay, well, you know, this team plays this way because they have these athletes and these, these caliber of players. These, this team plays this way. And then you kind of look at your team and assess the strengths and weaknesses. So I, I love being able to be in here. And I'm, even when I'm working, I got a game on mm -hmm. uh, the screen and I'm able to watch what's going on. And then for the, some of the more important games, you know, you want you want, want to go watch that on a bigger screen and or someplace where you can watch both games. Because, like, this afternoon is huge. Uh Argentina wins, it still doesn't mean they're in. Yeah. You know, Iceland could win and go in on goal differential. 
so both games have a lot of meaning, except for Croatia doesn't care because they've already won the group. Yeah. So yeah. will they sit players? Kind of like France is doing right now. Yeah, because they're not playing their top players. They don't no. care. They're already in. So <laughs> it's kind of... It's been it's been fun to watch, you know, and then you get the the World Cup this year, then you get the Women's World Cup the next year, <laughs> then the year after that is the European Championship. So every summer there's always something that that you can watch that'll be that's exciting and helpful. Yeah. You kind of mentioned comparing some of the World Cup players to your own players. Um, do you share that with your athletes too? Like maybe show clips of something that's happening in a World Cup or professional. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, we put we have a playing style that's uh, a playing style PowerPoint that's evolved over the years, but now we've got it down to okay, this is the number nine. The number nine is covering this range on the field. The number nine has to be technically able to do this, tactically this, physically this, psychologically this. These are the key performance indicators for that position. Whoever's playing that position, if it's three people, you need to come up with these numbers for the entire match, right? Because these are going to help us determine where they're going to win or lose. And in that, we have examples of teams playing in that formation in both attacking and defending. Um, if there's a player, you know, you can get clips now on YouTube and, and, and other things, other video platforms that people are putting together that do match analysis. I send that to the players. And if I find a player that's doing something, I'd be like, hey, uh, you know, Brooke, you're, you're playing as a wing player. This is Megan Rapino. This is how she plays it. Uh, you can't be lazy and walk back on defending like she does because we're not there yet and you're not there. But if you score 15 goals, Brooke, be lazy and walk back. But until that starts <laughs> happening, you need to get back and defend. So, you know, you, you give them ideas. And the interesting thing for me is, you know, male or female um, in soccer, they're doing the same thing. And they can do the same thing. You know, it's not like, you know, women's basketball they talk about is the more pure game of what basketball was. And men's basketball, and they're dunking all the time, doing that stuff. And women aren't doing the alley-oops at this point in time. But with soccer, anything on the field I've seen a, a male soccer player do, I've seen a, a woman do. And if you look at all the NWSL players and you follow them on Twitter, they all talk about, well, you know, who inspired you? Well, watching Ronaldinho or watching these players. So um, for me, I just you're looking at organization of the team, how they defend, how they attack, and individual pl player characteristics. What are they doing and what can they do? And then you tell a player, hey, you should really watch Modric play. And you don't have to worry about Hannah doing that because she's watching all the games too. She's a you know, soccer junkie. She loves to watch it. She's out training all the time. So, um, yeah, we do, we do share that. We try and use the visual. Uh, read a book called Habitudes uh, by Four Communicators, and it talked about y'all's generation uh, responds more to imagery, to videos, to things like that. So we're trying to incorporate a lot of that more into than just me talking to them or me writing the written word more images and, and video type stuff. So, um, as far as, like, youth development go goes, and you have a history of that, you know, in Colorado Springs, um, what do you think that the U.S. men's national team needs to do to kind of catch up with what the women's team is doing and kind of just kind of get back to where they once were on the world stage, you know, like, the kind of, I mean, not making the World Cup this year, obviously. And How much time you got? Pushes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's a very interesting article I read, and you can see this happening. And honestly, it like parallels what happened to us in last year. Uh, it said, "Did the U.S. men's national team lose their fight?" Okay, and what it talked about was coming off the World Cup, previous World Cup in 2014, the men's national team was actually getting respect as a soccer playing 
unit that they hadn't received before. We were always the underdog and all oh, just U.S. They got lucky to get through or they played hard. Yeah. Right? They played hard and they won. But we weren't good at soccer. Now we get the respect, right? Well, what happened to the main stars? Michael Bradley, Josie Altidore, Clint Dempsey, what did they do? They left European club teams that they were fighting to find playing time on to come back to the MLS for big paychecks. So now they're getting paid. They don't have to work really that hard to have the position on the field that they're, that they're in. Uh, they're getting respect and being told that they're good. And U.S. soccer, I think, did a poor job of bringing on those younger, more talented players to push them because they got comfortable. I also think that uh, the U.S. is a little idealistic in what they think they can do on the field versus what they can do. I mean, you go into Trinidad, Tobago, and instead of being uh, in a a four two three one or a four one four one or some type of a defensive minded formation, they went in there to possess the ball and ping it around against a team that we needed a tire win against in order to be playing right now. And in doing that, they opened themselves up for a counter. They didn't respect the opponent, and everybody was kind of casually going about the business, especially in those envir- in that environment with those conditions. So from that standpoint, I think we need to get back to you know earning your position through performance and merit, not everybody gets to play kind of thing. If you look at Pulisic, who wrote a great... Uh, letter to the fans saying that he apologized for not getting his team, helping get the team to the, the tournament. He talked about at uh, Borussia Dortmund, if you're not performing, you're out. So he was put into an environment where you, you had to perform every single day. And I think we've lost some of that in the country because there's development academy teams all over the place and everybody gets to play. Well, we don't have 85 clubs worth of elite level players here in the United States. It needs to be tighter yeah, you know and that kind of thing kind of. and and I like what we've done now with these younger players you see them in there they're fighting they tied France uh, 1-1 and those guys looked hungry they wanted to be out there and if you're creating that environment where they're pushing now the the Michael Bradleys and those players now they have to play harder and I think we lost that um, so from a development standpoint I just think there needs to be more emphasis on creating an environment where these players have to perform I guess one last question would be, uh, what can fans expect from the Iowa State soccer team this upcoming season? I think, you know, what what people, and it's interesting, we had a a run of commitments in the the spring. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody that came here was like, wow, yeah, this is where I want to go. And you would think that, okay, looking at potentially our record might deter people, oh, well, you guys weren't very good. But a lot of players watch the games, and they also said, it was amazing to them that we kept going into overtime after overtime and we never broke. I mean, we never quit. And to finish the season the way we did, going 0-0 TCU in that game and then coming back and coming back to tie it against Texas Tech and then going on the road to beat Kansas State, they said it just shows a lot of resolve and a lot of character. And it's portrayed in their interaction with the team. They're like, oh, everybody this is like a huge family. Everybody cares. Uh, and so... When you look at that, you're going to see that translate onto the field. Uh, we are going to work incredibly hard. We're going to be really organized defensively, and we're going to compete until the, the last whistle blows. So, you know, I don't ever talk about results because I don't know if that – you can't determine that. Mm-hmm. And you could have a real – I think our team in fall 17 was a better, more talented team than what we had in fall 16, to be honest. 
but yet we won a lot of games in fall 16 because things came together for us. And, you know, I think that if people want to see a group of individuals that are really committed to the Iowa State way and competing and working hard, uh, they're going to come in. They're going to see that happen no matter who our opponent is. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That was Tony Minata. Uh, a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, we learned a lot. It was a really good interview. He's a great interview. A pretty good coach, good guy, too. Um, if you like the, the interview style of our podcast, uh, yesterday, Monday, Les and Kobe and I sat down with Kyvin Gadsden and Austin Gomez, a pair of wrestlers from who have spent time at Iowa State or are at Iowa State. Make sure to check that out. There's a lot of good stuff there, too. Yep, check it out on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. Um, could be coming soon to Google Play and to our own website, iowastatedaily.com. Um, make sure to keep an eye out. We might have more interview podcasts like this in the future. Um, until then, y'all have a great day. Thanks for listening.